Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 2. We are in a sermon series right now, going through the book of John. If you've missed any weeks, I highly encourage you to go back and and read and and listen uh, to some of those. Uh, Malachi, can you grab me one of those that you've got there too? Thank you, sir. Yeah, yeah. You'd be my best friend. You'd receive a blessing. I just want to remind you, as you're turning to John chapter 2, what it says in John chapter 20. And in verse 31 of chapter 20, it reminds us that these things are written so that you may believe. Say, so that you may believe. So these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Thank you, sir. Either one. Thank you, sir. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have, have life in his name. How I many know life in his name is really good? Right? So this is uh, basically an apologetic, if you will. That's a long word. You can go Google it later. Um, apologetic. For the entire book of John. Why is John here? It is so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that through him we'll have life. And so as we read this, we're reading to find out about Jesus. Give me just a moment here. Now last week, we talked about the wedding in Cana, and that was a fun sermon because we got to talk about a party, right? Weddings are fun. We're, we're having a wedding here in about four weeks. Y'all are invited, and it's going to be fun. It's going to be a party. We're going to have a good time. I, I'm way more excited about that than any of y'all. I'm like up here thinking, yeah, amen, all right. And you guys are just like, yeah, it'll be good. It'll be good. It'll be a wedding. Okay, I get it. I'm excited. All right. Um, but that that was last week. But I want you to notice that John, as he's writing, I, I, I think it's strange when you're preaching through this. I'm glad we're preaching through it be, because we get to go through every story. But every story is seven days apart, right? As I'm going through each part of John, it's seven days apart. But if you're reading this, if you were just sit down and read John chapter 1 and 2, you'd come through these pretty quick back to back. So John intentionally puts these stories right next to each other. And so we just got done reading about the wedding in Cana and turned the water into wine. And there was more wine. It was the best wine. And that Jesus loves a good party. He loves to keep the party going. And we found out that Jesus has authority. But now let's look at John chapter 2, verse 13. I'm going to go ahead and read through this whole passage, and then we'll back up, and I'll just preach through a few parts of it and point out a few parts of it as we go. But I want to start with talking about the Passover before I launch into this. Because if you remember when we looked, uh, talked about it a few weeks ago, we talked about some history that goes into it. The Passover was something that happened in Egypt Remember, the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt. And how many know being a slave is no good and it's no fun and you don't want to be a slave? And so 
They got out of Egypt, but there was all these plagues that came through. And the last plague was that the angel of death, or the, the destroyer, if you will, came and passed by every home in, there in that part of Egypt. And he would pass over that house if that house had the blood of a lamb painted on the doorpost. That's what happened. Now, when they left Egypt, the Lord said, I want you to remember what they called the Passover, where the angel of death, the destroyer, passed over the home because the blood of the lamb was there. But if the blood of the lamb wasn't there, the firstborn in that home died. And so to remember this, they had a festival every year where they would celebrate that event, the Passover. And it would remind them of the time that the destroyer passed over their home because of the blood of the lamb. And so... Now we're fast forward hundreds of years, and they've been celebrating this for hundreds of years, and here we are. Verse 13. It says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for, the, for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, this is a, a really interesting passage. First of all, it's happening at Passover. I love this because John is starting his account of Jesus. And, and just so we know, there's, there's four accounts in our Bible of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the four Gospels. But John is very different. Matthew, Matthew Mark, and Luke are what we call the synoptic Gospels. I know that's a big word, synoptic Gospels. And the synoptic Gospels have a little bit different stuff in them. And first of all, as we saw last week, with the miracle of the water and the wine, there's not as many miracles in John as there are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have lots of parables. John doesn't have any parables. So there's some really big difference. And another difference is, is that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they also tell the story of Jesus clearing the temple, but they tell it at the end of Jesus' ministry on earth just before he's about to be crucified. But John puts this story at the very beginning. Now, this could be interpreted a couple ways. One, 
John just put it at a different spot. He told the story out of order. Or two, it happened twice. Once at the beginning, once at the end, and they all just decided to tell it at different times in their story. I, I tend to believe it happened twice, which is an interesting way to look at it when you're thinking about theology and all these other things. But think about this. John starts his writing with Jesus during Passover week. And what we're going to find when Jesus is crucified, guess what time it is again? It's Passover week. So Jesus' ministry from John goes from Passover to Passover with a couple Passovers in between. And what we're going to do as a church is every time we come to a Passover section in John, we're going to take communion together. So we're going to be doing that here in just a moment. And we'll talk about that here in a minute. What I think is interesting when we look at this, last week we talked about the wedding of Cana, the water into wine. Do you realize that was a, a very small community and it was really kind of a private miracle. I know it was at a party, but it was only those guests at the wedding that saw the miracle in this small town. That was at the wedding. But here at the temple, it was Passover. And the thing to do was to travel to Jerusalem to make your sacrifice. So all these people who are Jewish people are coming to Jerusalem to make their sacrifice. So there were hundreds of thousands of people in the town at that time. And what they would do is they would come in to the temple area, and they had this large area outside the temple that was called the Court of the Gentiles. Big, giant area. And you know, sometimes it's not real convenient to travel with your best sheep. How many of you have ever traveled with, with an ox before? Nobody? Not, not real convenient. And so what you could do is when you got to the temple, instead of bringing your animal with you, you could just buy one when you got there. How convenient. But you'd actually need a special kind of money to do it. So you'd actually have to trade your money for the money you could use to buy the animal for. And so when you made that trade, when you exchanged that money, how many know sometimes when you change money that the person you're changing money with makes a little extra money off you sometimes. I remember one time I was in Germany, and I was just trying to buy a soda, and I had no, I had these euros in my hand, and I walked up to the guy, and he told me how much it was, and I was just looking down at it, like, I don't know what's going on right now, and he just took some money out of my hand and gave me some other money, and I walked off with my soda and the money, and it took me another 10 minutes to do the math to realize he had royally ripped me off because I didn't understand what I was doing. How do you know when you trade money, the person that's doing the trade, they're going to make some money off you. So that's what's going on. So you're trading out your money. These people are making money off you. Then you're going over here, and you're, and you're buying your animal. Because what would happen is you could go into the temple, and you had to bring your best animal. And if you get there, and your animal wasn't acceptable to the priest, you know what they would do? They'd reject it. And then you have no offering to give in the temple during Passover. So a good way around that was to buy one of their animals, because then it was for sure to pass the test. Does this seem a little shady to anybody else? Yeah. Now, this is what's going on in the court of the Gentiles. In fact, when you look at this uh, language 
In the original Greek, um, it's similar to where we get the word emporium today. Have you been to an emporium? Imagine, ever been to a carnival where they pack up and they travel and they move places? Like this was a festival that was happening this week. It probably wasn't this crowded all the time, but it definitely was this week. People come in to make their money during this week because there's going to be tons of people coming in to the city. And so I don't know if you've ever been to a, a, a third world nation, an emerging nation, a, a marketplace where people are trying to sell you stuff all the time. And they're shouting at you and it's just loud and chaotic and all this stuff is going on. But this was the court of the Gentiles. And as you moved in, there was the court of the Gentiles. And then there was another barrier you could walk through. And it was the court of the women. And you walk in and you get closer to where only the priests were allowed to go in the inner court. And as you spread out, you have this court of the Gentiles. This is where Gentiles were supposed to be able to come and pray to Jehovah. But instead, what's going on? There's buying and selling and there's mooing and bah and money and all this stuff going on. And chaos is going on in the court of Gentiles. When Jesus overturns the tables of the money changers later on, he says that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Well, the court of the Gentiles where all nations should have been able to come and pray. But instead, there's buying and selling going on there. When we look at the the wedding feast, Jesus was asked, hey, will you, will you do something about this? But in this instance, Jesus was not asked. In fact, he kind of just butted in. said, you know what? I have an opinion about this. And the reality is Jesus had probably seen this going on since he was a little boy. He'd been going up for Passover every year since he was a little boy. He'd been watching this happen. It wasn't new to him. It was commonplace. It's what happened. And the last difference I see is at the wedding, Jesus brought joy to everyone. But now Jesus is bringing outrage to everyone. The reality is we like the Jesus who makes wine. We like the Jesus who keeps the party going. We like the Jesus who makes biscuits and gravy and Let's us all sit down and eat breakfast. We, Jesus, we like that, Jesus. But what about the Jesus who gets in our business? What about the Jesus who says this part of what's going on in your life isn't right? I'll say, uh, if you get a chance ever to go up to Branson to watch the Jesus play up at Sight and Sound, it's very good. They hit this scene so well. They definitely convey the passion of the moment. And what, what I think is interesting is that Jesus, this isn't just all of a sudden he walks in, looks around, and gets mad and does this thing. He'd seen this go on since he was little. And so what does he do when he gets there? He takes the time to sit down, and he says he makes a whip. So it's not like he just got mad and just started doing stuff. He got mad and then sat down. And took the time to make a whip. And when he got done making the whip, he was still mad enough to do something about it. Now you have to understand that there is such thing as a righteous anger. Jesus was without sin. 
So this anger that he had was a, a righteous anger. But what was his anger about? His anger was about his father's house. It was his father's house. Let's look at this again. He said in verse 16, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And it says his disciples remembered it is written, zeal for your house consumes me. This is my, my father's house. He's establishing his authority in that place. This isn't just where you do business. This is my father's house. My, my question for us this morning is so many times, do we get so busy doing religious activity that we forget whose house it really is? Can I step on toes for a second? You might have to pull them in. Because I hear this a lot, not just from people in our church, but from other churches. It's just, I think, commonplace to be said in the body of Christ from now from people who are faithful church attendees. They'll say this. People just don't understand how much I do. I've had other pastors say it to me. Now, there's other issues going on there. I don't just want to be mean. Sometimes people generally aren't appreciated enough. We definitely should honor people who are serving. But the problem is when we make statements like that, we're focusing on the doing and not the Father. Do you realize that Jesus served to the point that it killed him? And ever once that he uttered, people just don't understand how much I do. In fact, it said he never made a sound. as he was being beaten, as he was taking up, walking up to give his life on the cross, he never made a sound. Not one complaint. What did he say? He didn't say that people just don't appreciate me enough. They just don't realize all I'm doing. What, what he said was, Father, forgive them. When we look at passages like this, and this is what really got into me hard is, so many times we look at passages like this and we say, well, at least I'm not like those people. At least I'm not like these money changers that are turning God's house into a den of thieves, a bunch of robbers. And it's true, their hearts were totally about themselves and their money and all of them, not about the Father's house. There might have been someone there who thought they were actually doing something good for people. You know, it's really hard for people to travel with a goat. So what we do is we raise goats and we just make them available. They might have been thinking they're actually doing a good service, but it still wasn't the Father's heart. And when I read this this week and as I was studying, what, what really hit me was so many times we say, I'm glad I'm not like them, but that's not the posture of our heart when we read Scripture. We should say, is there anything in this that's in me? As I'm reading this, I should not say, man, I'm glad I'm not them. What I should be saying is, Lord, is there anything that's going on here that's also in me? Maybe just a little bit. Maybe it's just a little seed of a thing that's going on in me that's also right here. And these people who are buying and selling 
where people are supposed to be praying. Sometimes we make our busyness our ministry, and, and I think in our church we've done a good job of filtering what we do. That we don't just do stuff. We get invited to do things all the time, guys. As a pastor, I get calls all the time, and I say no to so much because they're just doing things. Religious activity isn't what saves us. It's knowing the heart of the Father. In both of these stories, the story of the wine and the story of the whip, Jesus is establishing his authority. I am the master of the feast, and I am the one who set things right in my father's house. But here's the biggest question. It's, it's this. What are we doing with Jesus? Because what does Jesus say here? He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up. And they're like, it took us 46 years to build this. But Jesus wasn't talking about that temple. He was talking about himself. Do you realize that Jesus is this temple for us? What are we doing with Jesus? Do we honor this temple the way we should? Do we honor Jesus like we should? And what, what was on me this week as I was, as I was reading this and, and studying this, it's, I was thinking about how commonplace it became to buy and sell in the corner of the Gentiles. It was just, it's just what was done. And we get comfortable with things because it's just always what is done. I was talking to a man once, and he said, you know, what I've realized over the years is the older a denomination gets, the further from the truth of the word it gets. And I said, why do you think that is? He goes, tradition. The older it gets, the more they get stuck in their tradition, more than they trust what the word says. But not only that, ladies and gentlemen, is sometimes I think we get comfortable with our own sin because because you're doing it too, right? Like, like if Jesus is the temple, if Jesus is who we're supposed to be honoring, then how do I live a life that honors this holy man? He's not just the God of a good party. He's also the God of holiness. He's not just the God of wine. He's the God of a whip, that wants to bring holiness to our lives, to set aside ourselves for Jesus. And so I say, well, it's okay for me to watch this TV show. Steve watches it too. Never mind that everything in that show is completely ungodly. Yeah, I'm, I'm just watching it. Why, why do we find our entertainment in what the enemy is doing? Why do we find entertainment in the things that the enemy is exalting? For some reason, we're intrigued by it. I, I admit I am too. Murder and sex and all sorts of foul language. And this is where we find our entertainment. And you're hard-pressed adults to find 
entertainment geared towards you that isn't that. And I'm not just trying to step on this one issue because you, you start preaching on these things and then people just, they don't stop watching stuff. They just stop talking about what they're watching. Because Pastor Drew talked about what you watched the other day. So I'm not going to tell anybody what I'm watching anymore. Guys, it's not for me to tell you what you should and shouldn't watch. We're always going to be a people of grace. Well, I know each one of you are in a different place and walking in your Christian walk. But I'm going to tell you what something that convicted me this week was if I am supposed to live a life dedicated to Jesus, why am I entertained by the enemy's plans? Why am I entertained by the stealing, killing, and destroying? Why am I not entertained by the word of God? So I found myself this week going more to sources. Uh, like instead of turning on that whatever show, like let me go to YouTube and see if I can't find this minister talking about whatever. Or just turn on worship music or something different. Because, not because I'm trying to make myself holy. You, you can't earn God's love anymore. Jesus loves you you can't earn his love but yet there's a response to his holiness and i want to live a life of holiness because he is good um where's gene can i have you guys come up jesus makes this statement he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up. And his disciples didn't know it then, but he's talking about his death and resurrection. Do you realize now, in just two chapters, we've seen this idea of Jesus being the sacrifice already two or three times. Remember, remember when John said it? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I don't think it's a coincidence that he said it because they're during, it's during the Passover. So everyone's thinking it's Passover. i got to get my lamb for Passover. And in the middle of it, John's going, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, saying he will die for our sins. And here Jesus is calling his shot, like Babe Ruth pointing out into center field. He's saying, destroy this body, and in three days I'll raise it up. He's telling exactly what's going to happen. Turn with me real quick to 1 Corinthians 13, and I'm, 1 Corinthians 11, sorry, not 13, that's about love. You can study 14 if you're wondering about tongues and prophecy and all that. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. verse 27 it says this and remember we're talking of jesus he said my body is the temple now we know you're also the temple of the holy ghost but here jesus was saying i'm the temple we're talking about my body i'm the temple and these people did not understand what his father's house was all about in first corinthians chapter 11 verse 27 says Whoever therefore eats the bread 
or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. So, excuse me, then, so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And it says that is why so many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we have judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. See, here in just a moment, we're going to take communion. This is something Jesus did with his disciples during that Passover. And people get really scared about how to, what does it mean to take in an unworthy manner? And can I tell you, it's pretty simple. Judge yourself. Judge yourself. Now, at this church, we believe in open communion. You do not have to be a member of our church to take communion with us. We believe this is about remembering what Jesus did. And can I tell you something? We've had people in this church get saved while taking communion. What? They weren't even Christians and they were taking communion? Yes. And as they were about to take it, they judged themselves. You know what they realized? I'm not right with Christ. I'm away from Him. And as they judged themselves, they remembered the body and the blood of Jesus. And as they took it, they gave their life to Christ because of what He did and who He is.